Today's reading is from Exodus 15, and we're going to start at verse 13. That's on page 74 in the Pew Bibles. You're welcome to follow along in your own versions, of course. That's Exodus 15, starting at verse 13. It says this, In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them by the power of your arm. They will be as still as a stone. Until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you bought pass by, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over of them, but the Israelites walked on from the sea on the dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them, sing to, the, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and the rider he has hurled into the sea. Let's pray. Well, we pray, as always, that we come here with a greater understanding of who you are, how you love us and how you want us to love our neighbor. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. We are in our series on Exodus, as you may have worked out. We're calling this Exodus Away Out, where we look at the different themes in Exodus and think about what God might be leading us out of, and maybe more importantly, the exciting and good and beautiful things that God is leading us to. And today is going to be a sermon of two halves, but I don't want to spoil the second half. I want you eagerly excited about what it might be. Uh, <laughs> as a quick catch up for those of y'all who might have missed some stuff, we've been looking at the first few chapters of Exodus. We've been looking at the mistreatment of the Israelites in Egypt by Pharaoh. We've looked at how God has heard the cries of the people. We've looked at how God responds and how God reveals his power and shows that he has not forgotten the oppressed. Last week, Lucy shared some rules that God has in mind for the outsiders, especially for immigrants and refugees, and how we need to remember our roots and how they need to remember their roots as strangers in a strange land. So they were once foreigners, so how should they treat foreigners? And the Bible, of course, is packed to the brim on how important it is to love the outsider. So it was great to have this reminder from Lucy. And this week, I want to take a moment to talk about Miriam. We did hear in that very short reading that Miriam is held up as a prophetess and that she takes a tambourine and leads the woman in a song. Uh, but this isn't the first or last time that we hear about Miriam. Jewish scholars actually credit Miriam with being the sister who suggested a Hebrew midwife for Moses. If you remember back in Exodus 2, we hear about how Moses is placed in the river and then she's rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. 
and then it is Moses' sister who says, maybe we should have a Hebrew woman act as a midwife for this child. And then actually works out that Moses' mother is hired to be the midwife for her own child, to nurse Moses. So even very early on, Miriam is acting in a way that keeps her family together, acting in a way that's you know, outsmarting the Pharaoh, acting in a way that makes sure that people are provided for. She's ensuring her mother has an income by feeding her own child, which is, again, this wonderful example of how God redeems nearly impossible situations. Her quick thinking rescues a terrible situation of a mother being separated from her child and redeems it into a best-case scenario. And the next time that we hear about Miriam is in Exodus 15, which is the reading we've just heard. There is, as I was researching it this week, there's some contention over who wrote or who we should attribute the longer poem or the longer song to there. Uh, lots of people want to attribute it to Moses. Quite a few people also want to attribute it to Moses and Miriam. Our Bible says a song of Moses and Miriam. Um, Again, people really like to give Moses a lot of credit, which makes sense. He is Moses. Uh, but people also quick to point out that a lot of songs in Scripture are often attributed to women. So Deborah has a song, and Hannah has a song, and Mary has a song. And we'll be hearing about that during our Advent series soon, because it's the best song in the history of the world. So, <laughs> so women sing some really good songs in Scripture. So it makes sense that Miriam may have had something to do with that. She is at least responsible for the chorus of this song. And she's reminding who God is, reminding the people who God is, reminding the people what God has done. And she picks up a tambourine to do it. Now, she doesn't have, Kevin has like, a pedal board with eight different pedals on it. Miriam did not need as many pedals as you did to lead the people in song, Kevin. So I don't know. Maybe just pick up a tambourine next time and see how that uh, <laughs> see how that works out for you. I'll also point out she's 90 years old by this point. So I think that's pretty exciting that we got a 90-year-old woman on a tambourine just giving it what for. So again, Phyllis, if you're ready to pick up a tambourine, we're all gonna we're all gonna go for it. <laughs> But there's a clear elation and beauty to what Miriam is doing there. Uh, Miriam is also noted centuries after these events in one of my favorite pieces of scripture. Uh, in Micah 6, when God is reminding the people of everything that he has done for them, he says this, my people, and this is also when God's super mad at the people, so he's like, why do you keep messing up? He's like, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and Aaron and Miriam. So it's clear that Miriam is this key, important figure in history, that even God himself notes her as someone. When you remember how good I have been to you, you remember Miriam. You remember who she is. It's interesting that, yeah, for this big part of where we hear about Miriam, she's an old unmarried woman, and yet she is heralded as the first prophetess of Scripture. She's an example of God's generosity to people throughout the ages. 
And, and this is where the sermon is going to take a bit of a turn, but I'm hoping you follow me here. Something that kept on coming up over and over again when I was researching Miriam this week is that despite there being no evidence for it at all in Scripture, uh, different scholars and mystics and leaders and historians are, are really eager to make up who Miriam is married to. Uh, some people say that she's married to her, which is H-U-R, I understand that's confusing. She was married to her. Another said, no, she's not married to her. That's silly. She's married to Caleb, and her son was named her. I cannot stress this enough. This stuff is not in the Bible. It's just not there. And actually, we hear about how those people are married to people that aren't Miriam. Like, it explicitly says they're not married to Miriam. But I think this speaks to a very long-standing tradition in church and the discomfort that it has regarding people who aren't married. And so, if you will permit me, I'm calling the rest of this sermon <laughs> the problem with single people. <laughs> now, I want to immediately change that and point out it is the church's problem with single people and how we have got it very wrong. This is the church's problem with single people and where we need to do better. So let's start with a problem, and then let's try and look at some solutions. There's going to be some elements of this that are hard to hear. As you know, it's never my intention that people walk away from church uh, feeling awful about themselves. Uh, but sometimes these, these things are, are hard, uh, but I do want to also begin with an apology, because I think I, as a church leader and really church leaders everywhere need to apologize for the way that single people have fallen through the cracks at Wellspring and everywhere else. The truth is that churches do tend to center and celebrate milestones that involve being a couple. So we like to celebrate engagements, and that's a good thing. And we like to celebrate marriages, and that's a good thing. And we like to celebrate uh, pregnancies and children, and those are good things. It's, it's good to celebrate those things. But those are quite difficult when one is single. This, amongst many, many other things, has led the church to become a place where people who aren't in a relationship can feel a lot less connected. I was reading a lot of stats on this this week. That's the thing I like to do, research statistics. Uh, and there's lots of different stats and lots of different studies that have been done, and so this is kind of a mash, but they all really say the same thing, frankly. Uh, one stat that jumped out to me that while over 50% of adults are now unmarried, uh, considerably less than 50% of people in church are unmarried. What's more, nearly 50%, 46% of those who aren't in a relationship say that they feel devalued or an outcast or at a lesser stage of life in church because they are single. And, and that should be hard for us to hear. These are, these are a few of the responses to the survey from kind of testimonies from people who aren't in a relationship and how church can be hard for them. Uh, one person says, we go wild for weddings, anniversaries, and christenings, and so we should, but it means that if you're single, you're never celebrated in the same way. Another one said, uh, at a previous small, small church, a group for singles and young married adults was called pairs and spares. <laughs> Need I say more? 
Uh, another says, the idea that life is somehow incomplete or lesser without a significant other is prevalent. Uh, married couples are always referred to by their last names, and I'm always referred to by my first. It really highlights who is married and who isn't. The final one, what's been difficult is hearing statements such as, when you get married, or God hasn't finished preparing your partner yet, or there's someone out there for everyone. It doesn't actually encourage me, but rather it causes me pain. Like, how do these responses make us feel, I think? Like, is it painful? Is it illuminating? We live in a world that, for a variety of reasons, has an increasing number of single people, an increasing number of people that aren't in a relationship. So how is it that we reach out and show them that there is a place for them too? How is it that we behave as a community that shows them that they are not forgotten? I think a starting place <laughs> is remembering that there are myriad reasons why someone might not be in a relationship. For some, that might be very painful. For some, it might be a choice they've made and they're actually quite excited by. Or it might be a choice that someone else has made for them and it's a wound that they still carry. But let's at least start by remembering that people are different. Everyone is different. Everyone is created in the image of God and each one of those people has something else to share with us about who God is and what God is like. We need to ask ourselves, I think, as a church, as individuals, as leaderships, as groups, why do we treat singleness as if it's something that must always be fixed? Because this mindset of thinking that everyone must want to be in a relationship or could just be in a relationship if they tried harder, it can lead us to a place of what I found called poorly executed good intentions. And that might be us telling them something like, I don't know why you're single, you're great. <laughs> or the kind of concern of like, well, maybe if you put yourself out there a bit more, you wouldn't be alone. Again, I believe these things are often said with the best of intentions, but intentions don't always matter when you're saying something that can be hurtful. The problem with both of these statements, ultimately, is that they are both viewing singleness as a problem that needs to be fixed. The idea that marriage is the ultimate goal of the Christian life and that everyone should be aiming for that. And, and honestly, this is, the more I thought about this, this this week, this is something that Christians everywhere desperately need to repent of. Like, not to put too fine a point on this, I was reading 1 Corinthians 7 this week. If you're ever in doubt as to what the Bible says is better, <laughs> read 1 Corinthians 7. It's really clear about what the New Testament thinks is best. Uh, Paul, the author of 1 Corinthians, and like half of the New Testament, frankly, says this, I wish that you were all as I am. <laughs> I wish you were single, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Like, imagine if we took this part of the Bible as literally and as seriously as we take some of those other parts. It is better to be single. I, I wonder how many of us earnestly believe that or even 
can say we come from a church culture that takes that part of Scripture seriously, I think we still treat being single, we treat not being in a relationship as if it is a problem that we need to fix. Um, in those studies as well, one of the studies <laughs> came back and said that over half the churches they surveyed, half the churches they surveyed, wouldn't allow someone to be a church leader unless they were married. And it's at this point I need to take a little break <laughs> and state something that may be the most obvious thing I will ever state at the front at a church. Uh, at Wellspring, we call ourselves Christians. And the reason we call ourselves Christians is after this guy, Jesus Christ. Christ means anointed or chosen. But Jesus Christ is kind of the point of all of this. And from this, we get this word Christian. Jesus is kind of a big deal. We focus on him a lot. We, we might think of him as our leader, even. And apparently, half of the churches wouldn't allow Jesus Christ as their leader because <laughs> he's not married. <laughs> that blows my mind. Can you imagine a church literally saying, sorry, Jesus, I'm not sure you have a lot to offer here. Maybe when you get a wife, we'll listen to you. I, I want to believe that Jesus is welcome here, <laughs> that we are always listening to Jesus, that we remove any barriers that may be in the way of us hearing from Jesus. If, you, if you're feeling called out, um, maybe that's okay. Maybe that's God, you know filing off one of those harsher edges or something, and that's okay. It's not my intention that you leave here just feeling worse about yourself or with nowhere to go. But I do want everyone here to remember that everyone's story is different, and so marriage may be the best thing that ever happened to you, and that's beautiful and good, and I'm genuinely so happy for that. You may also be unmarried, and that may be the best thing that's happened to you. Maybe you take 1 Corinthians 7 really seriously. And if that's the case, I hope that's true as well. But it doesn't mean that marriage is for everyone. It wasn't for Jesus. It wasn't for Paul. They're kind of significant figures here. But because everyone is unique... It means that those who are not in a romantic relationship will be affected by that lack of romantic relationship differently. There are some people who simply are not romantically attracted to others. So how do we make sure there is a space for them? For some, it may be a real liberating experience to <laughs> not be in a relationship and they're, they're tired of explaining it. For others, it may be this acutely painful part of their lives and they're probably tired of explaining that as well. But let's listen to each person's story separately. So... I guess that's kind of the beginning of the solution. It's just treat people as individuals <laughs> and listen to people. Just do that all the time. That's a good thing to do. When we think about who we are as a community, who we are as a church, who we are as a leadership, uh, I've mentioned that uh, we need to be always conscious of how other people are feeling. Let's be quick to listen. 
let's remind ourselves that everyone's story is sacred and ultimately revelatory of who God is. And so if we keep on having the same sort of people at the front, the same sorts of leaders, the same sort of people sharing, we're going to be missing out on pieces of who God is. So <laughs> I realize you have an unmarried pastor and that's apparently a highly controversial thing for 50% of churches. Uh, so that, you know, you've got a little bit of an edge there, I suppose. But let's continue to be intentional in making sure we have a disparity of voices speaking and sharing and revealing who God is. A really big one for me, and I've been thinking about this a lot this week, is about fostering an environment where, whilst it is okay to be alone, some people like being alone, that's okay. After service today, I'm going to go home and not talk to anyone. It's going to be great. <laughs> it's okay to be alone. It is not okay to have an environment where anyone is lonely. It's okay for people to be alone. It's not okay for people to be lonely. Uh, when I started at Wellspring as an intern after Bill Hall, under Bull Hall, sitting at the back there, um, I've been at the church about two weeks, and Donna Barker, I told you I was going to be nice about her, uh, Donna Barker invited me to Thanksgiving at her house. Uh, and it really meant the world to me, and it's literally the only tradition I have in Canada, <laughs> is going to her house for Thanksgiving. Her family went above and beyond to include me. I also didn't have a washing machine at the time, so I brought my laundry with me. This is how little pride I have. <laughs> but of course you can bring your laundry, James. No worries. This is what welcome and inclusion looks like. That's what hospitality can look like. What are we doing to ensure that no one is lonely? I think we as a church as well need to do a better job of celebrating those non-relationship-based milestones. Again, I'm going to confess for a second, I've gone too far the other way here. Um, I was going to announce the exciting news of Daniel and Darlene's pregnancy, but then I was like, well, we haven't celebrated anything that isn't relationship-based. So then I just didn't celebrate that at all. And that's bad. Like, we don't want to do that. It's like, well, I'm just going to break everyone's toys. Now no one can have fun. That's not how I want to be. <laughs> I just want to celebrate more. We should celebrate those big moments in life. Of course we should. But not just the relationship ones. What about when people get new jobs? That's a huge deal. What if they stayed at a job for a long time? Again, that's an impressive thing. What if you get a new dog or a new cat? That's a, that's a big, important thing for me. I want to hear about those things. Maybe we've completed courses we wouldn't think we'd do, or we've completed a degree, or we've stayed sober for a week or for a decade. Like These are big milestones in people's lives, and they're ones that we should be celebrating more, and that I should be encouraging us to celebrate more. So, so hold me accountable there as well. Like, I want to do better. I want to see and I want to hear those pieces of your lives that are exciting. Honestly, for some people just getting through the week, I'll take that. Life is hard sometimes. And I think it's okay to celebrate just making it through. But let's be a community that has a more holistic understanding of what it means to celebrate with one another. Let's continue to make sure that there is space for people regardless of their relationship status. Or even those who are married 
feel celebrated for every aspect of their lives, not just their marriage. <laughs> and if there is any point here at all, <laughs> let's make sure that this is a place where Jesus would want to be, where it's a place that <laughs> we make sure that there is always, always, always the opportunity for us to hear from Jesus, that we don't put up these unnecessary barriers that may stop us from hearing from him. We always want to be a community. And Ken, Jesus is a single guy who spends a lot of his time with a bunch of other single folks, and yet they celebrated and they did life and they loved one another. And that is the life that we want to replicate. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the pieces that there are to celebrate. And Lord, we pray that we continue to do a better and better job of recognizing you're involved in every aspect of our lives. There is so much to celebrate. And Lord, for, the, for those of us who are struggling, for those of us who might not feel that there is much to celebrate, that even getting through the week is enough. And we thank you so much for that. And we want to surround one another, support one another, and be a community that knows and loves celebrates one another, and as always, follows your example and hears your voice. We ask all of these things in your name. Amen.